0: Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, a conversation where good thoughts help renew the mind with the Word of God. I'm Charlie Carter, and I'm here with Tim Little and Andy Stearns. Let's jump into the conversation. Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast. Tim, how are you?
1: I'm doing well. Good to see you, Charlie.
0: I'm doing well, and we're. it's October. It is. It was October last week, too.
1: But we weren't together.
0: But we recorded two episodes two weeks ago in Mm -hmm. September, so we haven't actually seen each other in October yet. What's new?
1: Oh boy, what is new? I've been teaching Intro to Bible Study for Andy. Uh, We are at Raccoon River Bible Camp. My wife did a series for the ladies. And this weekend, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, uh, we will be doing a marriage conference in Clarinda, Iowa. And if you'd like to join us, then uh, reach out to us we can get you in touch with the people who are hosting it. But.
0: <laughs> I thought you were. I thought you were directing that to me, like no. you, singular, Charlie. If you want to join us, let me know. I'm like, uh. well, Charlie,
1: if you want to, you could, but uh, it, it is technically a marriage conference, so it's not going to be showing up on Song of Songs for Singles.
0: <laughs> not really my cup of tea Mm-mm. there yet, perhaps. Uh, so as I was saying right before we hit record,
1: what have you been up to, Charlie?
0: So it's hunting season, not deer yet. season. Yeah, bow is. archery bow in Iowa opens the first of October.
1: Oh, so it's already on.
0: Yep. So a lot of preparations have been made. Deer stands have been hung. And I was commenting to Tim the other day that uh, I was commenting today about the other day that I was late to my small group at church because I was hanging deer stands and uh and i th- i think it was an act of grace so we we normally start at 615 and it's like a fellowship time and right. then we actually start at 630 i got there at like 633 because i absolutely needed to take a shower
1: oh i we believe you
0: i got down into this like ravine or ditch and i thought it was going to lead me out to the road and i was in the wrong ditch in the middle of the timber And it eventually gets to like five foot mud walls and I have to either go back or I have to climb the mud, scamper out of it. And I got out. It took me a couple of minutes to get out of there, but I was just filthy. Oh, I believe it. Yeah. And so anyway, but that's, that's what's new here. We've been, we've been hunting and
1: good old Iowa boy playing around in the mud.
0: Hey, you do what you got to (laughs) do, you know, it's all worth it when you kill the deer, you know, but, uh, anyway, so here's what is in This podcast episode, we uh, do have one announcement, which is going to be our Andy quote of the week since he is absent. We do have a note from a listener that we want to update all of our listeners on. And then we will get to some of the things that we always do, like our books and business. We will have a main thought for our episode and we will end the episode in a meditation in the Word of God. So, I wish, you know, I, at one time I thought about putting sound effects in for things. Like I had that like swoosh, like, and that would like get me to the next part of the podcast. Maybe I would insert that here. Anyway, announcements. (laughs) Swoosh. (laughs) Tomorrow morning, if you listen to this and there's a swoosh there, you knew (laughs) that I got really uh, gung ho about 6am. Anyway, so here's our Andy quote of the week. And this is again from AG Sertayange. Um, and this is about friendship from page 56. He says this friendship is an obstetric art. It draws out our richest and deepest resources. It, unf-, and this is my favorite part of the quote. It unfolds the wings of our dreams and hidden indeterminate thoughts. It serves as a check on our judgments, tries out new ideas, keeps up our, our ardor, our ardor and inflames our enthusiasm. So he's, again, talking about the society that an intellectual keeps, and he's highlighting the importance of friends. I think from last week or two weeks ago, the quote was on like page 54. This was 56. So it's just a couple of pages later where he, I, I just love that quote. What What is friendship? Friendship unfolds the wings of our dreams and hidden indeterminate thoughts. Like think about wings, how they're They're big, wide things and they're powerful, but you can keep them really close to your body. They don't do anything. And friendship is what brings the wings out. And it's the wings and it's there's two things. It's like the two wings, our dreams and our indeterminate thoughts. Like it helps us bring into clarity what was not clear. It helps what is uh, intangible, a dream become a reality. Friends are the ones that help you, uh, check your judgments, try out your new ideas and keep your strength, your ardor, uh, and it inflames your enthusiasm. And so love that quote. And, uh, uh, pretty much any time now I read about friendship, I think about obviously thinklings, but I think about Andy. Mm -hmm. And so Andy, we're praying for you and your family and we, we miss you.
1: He did release a new, um, blog, uh, today on Monday. So listener is this drops out on Tuesday, you can check that out on um his blog. Yep.
0: Thoughts worth thinking. That's right. On to listener emails. And we'll just throw a plug in there. We are now getting much better at responding to our listener emails. So our email is thinklingspodcast at gmail.com. And if you have anything you want to say to us, Send us an email. Just stop listening right now. Send us an email, and we'll mention you on the air. That's a that's a promise that historically we have not kept, but we will <laughs> in the future. So th- that being said, we've had a couple of discussions about Brandon Sanderson uh-huh. and the Stormlight Archives. Yep. And uh, John Swedberg had written in about them, and we mentioned that on a previous week. I had a a longtime Thinklings listener as well as a former student Cameron email me. And he emailed me personally because uh, I had raised the question: "Is this worth my time?" You know, type of a of a motive. And he gave me a strong plug of yes, this is worth your time. You should read this. And so that that did motivate me to consider when I may purchase and read through the Stormlight Archives. That being said, there's another uh, enterprise that has captured my interest recently. Um, I've started. Listening through, I do this when I go to bed, so it's not really super efficient, but I'm starting to listen through the Odyssey uh, by uh, Homer, translated by Robert Fagels, narrated by Sir Ian McKellen, a.k.a. I don't know. Gandalf. Oh. Uh, He doesn't sound like Gandalf as he reads it, though, but... A couple, so anyway, that's kind of the piece that I'm really onto now.
1: We almost started book two, Words of Radiance, uh, but uh, we haven't done it yet. Something about it being 48 hours long on Audible is kind of deterring us.
0: Yeah. So, and that's, you know, I I like to put really long books like that on my Audible when I'm going to bed. I usually, I I rarely make it past 10 minutes. Mm Mm-hmm. And so I, and then I, I try to go through the mental exercise of, well, what, what did I, what do I remember listening to last night?
1: That sounds like way too much work.
0: And so it's, it's every night before I go to bed, I'm like, okay, where did I leave off last night? And, uh, it's, it's just like this gross repetition, but by the end of it, you really like, so the Odyssey opens and it's Athena in the Parthenon with all the gods. And she's trying to convince Zeus, like, how are we going to get? Odysseus' home. Oh, boy. And the reason that Odysseus can't get home is because...
1: He's shipwrecked on an island.
0: Yes. And why is he shipwrecked?
1: Because of uh, the the little ladies... Oh, the
0: Cyclops. The Cyclops, who was the son... No, the Cyclops
1: of, didn't cause him to be wrecked on the island.
0: Well, uh, hold on. The Cyclops was the offspring of Poseidon. Oh. And because of what Odysseus did to the Cyclops, he won't let him sail home. Oh. And that's where like they're having this little conference of like, how do we, how do we figure out Poseidon? And uh, anyway. If,
1: and the Greek gods, they're so fickle and dumb. And what's interesting is- you, And impotent.
0: Well, and I think what's so interesting is you're getting a glimpse into the culture of a of a huge society and empire that they're, it's, it's paganism, but they have this belief that the sea and whatever, whatever, love, fertility, the fields, like they're all of these gods that control mm-hmm. these random things. Mm-hmm. And there's this discussion of like, well, hasn't Odysseus given you plenty of sacrifices? Oh yes, he's given me tons of sacrifice to earn my favor and that this was like the bedrock of a society.
1: You should finish that. And then we could do like my burnt offering. We talk
0: about burnt offering. (laughs) offering I I think it's fascinating that this is a, this is the bedrock of a Greek culture that Mm -hmm. was a dominant empire in the world. Yeah. And, and really the bastion of Western thought coming from some of the Greek philosophers and implicit in their worldviews is the Parthenon. And and so um anyway, to be continued. Yeah, um, sounds
1: like a books and business. You got a little we rambunctious there. You know who
0: we you know who we need here to discuss this. <laughs> I know, Josh Boyd. We need Dr. Josh Boyd.
1: Books and business. <laughs> we
0: have we have some thick leagues business to tend to.
1: Books and business. Tim
0: is Tim is telling me to move <laughs> on. All right, so here is the actual book that I have been reading and have finished. Uh, for one of the classes I'm teaching this fall, it's Discipleship of Children. And uh, I've mentioned this before, but we'll repeat it if it's a first-time listen. That first fall, fall of 2021, when I inherited the class, I really didn't know what to assign. I feel like I had a decent philosophy or biblical philosophy of what discipleship is. But then specifically with with like a textbook assignment, what do you assign students to read about discipling children? Mm -hmm. And that class started in August of 2021. And then, whammo, a book came out that Tim knew about called Let the Little Children Come by Scott Annual. I love the subheading, Family Worship on Sunday. And then in parentheses, and the other six days too. I just like that title. But uh, Tim at the time was like, hey, you should assign this in your class. I was like, well, a little late for that. You know, syllabus is already galvanized. And so, but I purposed right then that it was going to make the cut the next time around. It's a rotational class. So here we are two years later and we're reading it in class. And really uh, what the book is about is exactly what his title says. Family worship, and he, he breaks that into two categories. Family worship, and highlight being everyone together, family, worship on the Sunday in the midst of the congregation and the assembly, and family worship the other six days of the week. Mm-hmm. How he breaks the book apart is there are three sections. Uh, for section one is titled, A Little Bit of Doctrine, History, and Philosophy. And the doctrine, as he talks about the goal of discipling children, he goes right to the Shema. We need to teach people to people, teach children to know and understand and obey and love the Lord. From there, he gets into history of, well, why do we have this age segregated phenomena in our churches? Where did that come from? And walks through uh, some historical aspects in our modern Western culture of why we have that in our churches. And then he gets into the ideas of liturgy, of not necessarily like a, a high church liturgy in, in that sense, but the common practices in the midst of the assembly and in the midst of the home that would form the proper affections in the life of a child. So, so like,
1: what does he define as liturgy? Because a lot of our listeners might be a little turned off to that word
0: yeah, let me. He, well, you kind of
1: just defined it, I think.
0: He does give a pretty simple definition of it, if I can find the right page. I, I was not planning to. I know I discuss threw that at that. you,
1: but your definition, what you just said, was really the idea of liturgy.
0: Common practice.
1: Yeah, it's the it's the order of how you do things as far as your common practice is concerned. So when we think of liturgy, a lot of times we have this perception of a high church uh, setting where they followed the same rote processes and it's very redundant. you have it now?
0: So here, here's what he calls it. Uh, and he, the, the chapter title is do this in remembrance of me. Mm -hmm. So bringing to mind right away, the Lord's table, Mm -hmm. which is reserved for church assemblies. Mm -hmm. And what he calls them as habit forming practices. Here's what he says. Another name for habitual practices is liturgy. Liturgy doesn't mean smells and bells, robes, and rituals. It simply refers to the regular weekly acts as a church, plans for worship, and the order in which they are arranged in the service. Mm-hmm. And so, and then he goes into at its root, the concept of liturgy comes from the combination of two Greek words that mean people and action. Broadly speaking, liturgies are habit-forming practices people engage in as a member of a community.
1: Right. So as a Baptist, we tend to be against liturgy because yeah. our idea of liturgy is high church ritualistic religion and not a real personal relationship with God. Um, but really, the word liturgy is simply, the what did you say again, The the process, the order of the uh, habit forming, yeah. Uh, um, you already the regular your book.
0: regular habit forming practices people
1: make, right? Regular habit forming practices that people make, and as Baptists, well, we have some habit forming practices that we do some.
0: And and as an example, so here's here's kind of a a part of a worship service, and this is across Protestant or even non-Protestant churches, Catholic or Orthodox churches, so. A common practice that all of those churches participate in is, depending on where you're at, either the ordinance or the sacrament of the Lord's table or communion. Right. And here would be a liturgical question.
1: How, do How do often
0: it? do you do it? Sure.
1: Or even what's the process that you do do it? Exactly. We have a set process at our church. Yeah. It's the same every time that we do do it. So. Yeah,
0: and, and that's where, you know, certain mainline denominations uh, have that as a regular, and this is if they have a liturgy, a a planned practice of their worship services, that is a part of every service. So Catholics, Lutheran, Methodist, Presbyterian typically are going to have communion as a weekly part of their liturgy. There are are some Baptists
1: as well. In fact, annual as a Baptist argues for a weekly um,
0: communion. But that's not why we're here. We're not nope. going to talk about that. But that. That'd be an example of a regular habit-forming practice, which definitely has strict doctrine assigned to the practice as a memorial of the gospel. There's very specific theological ideas there, as with baptism, uh, as with other dimensions of a worship service. And so, anyway. S-
1: sorry I put you on that rabbit trail, man. No,
0: that's good. I Hey, I love rabbit trails. You're usually the one that doesn't want to go down those, but... Uh, so those—that's the first section—is some doctrine, history, and philosophy of age segregation and worship. You know how should the family approach things like that? And then really the second—there's there, three parts of the book. I'm just going to say the the rest is the second half. It's really then just a resource for parents to disciple their kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, the main second heading is tips for parents, pastors, and parishioners. And it's broken into two parts: tips for worship in the assembly. So, how do you help your kids on Sunday? Tips for the other six days. And I thought it was incredibly practical. And then the end, the second or the third section is tools and resources, and it's just a list of books, a list of ideas, calendars, you know, quote unquote, a liturgy of family devotions, songs you can sing, and and things like that for helping teach your children how to worship the Lord and so i think overall a very practical book and i think there's a lot of takeaways and i think depending on who's a part of the conversation this can be a very polarizing lightning rod of a book i think we need to to look at we we should do this with every book and i could go down the rabbit trail here of c.s lewis in a preface on a book about George MacDonald, who was a reformed minister in the 1800s, who had a lot of theological views that Lewis did not agree with, and he says, commenting on MacDonald, "Here we are going down the rabbit trail. We not we should not pigeonhole an author. And I I kind of like to just say it. We should be very fair and equitable, and view people with balance. They're they're rarely as polarizing as we want to make them seem. And there's a." a logical fallacy that's built on this premise. It's called a straw man. If I, if I can build someone up to, to be something that they're not, but that's clearly uh, adversarial, I can easily knock them down. Mm -hmm. And uh, we shouldn't do that with anybody mainly because we don't want anyone to do that with us. We need to fairly and equitably understand what someone is saying. So I think with balance here, here are kind of my two big takeaways from annual first, consider that the historical component annual points out is very interesting. This is what I mean by that. We should all at least historically agree that age-segregated ideas in youth ministry are a fairly recent phenomena. Children's church, Sunday school, youth group, you know, fill in the blank. Those have not always been the main practices of local churches. So, as Annual points out in that first section, we should want to analyze why we're doing what we're doing. Why, do, why is Sunday school such a mainstay institution of our churches? Or at least it has been for quite a while. I think COVID kind of ruined that for a lot of people. But why are we, why are we building so many practices on age segregation? Like on a Wednesday night in most of our churches, Youth group, Awana, Awana segregated by age, adults, okay? Sunday morning, you could have Sunday school classes that are completely age-dominated, and you could have uh, children's church. This age is not going to be in the main service. And regardless of whether we think one's morally right or wrong or whatever, we should at least be intrigued to consider why we've developed those practices and what the goal of them is. And as I think Annual's gonna, I think he does it very subtly. Are these the best methods of discipling our kids? I think that's a worthy question. And so I think though, I like the way he raises that from a historical perspective. I think he gives a a decently convincing exegetical argument that. Most places in scripture, it's assumed that kids are a part of the congregation, both both with Old Testament Israel and in the New Testament. And so I think it's it's worth considering. Uh, as he kind of wraps up, or, uh, it's not really a wrapping up. I don't think he's summarizing, but as he states about that, what parents are viewing with like a children's church or a Sunday school, he says, most parents think that children only understand and obey biblical truth when they learn it through methods that interest them. And so we do kind of have this idea that if we don't send them where the kids are supposed to be with kids of their own age, with songs that they enjoy singing, not those boring old hymns. And if we don't send them to the teacher who can, you know, use pictures and activities to help them learn the Bible, if we make them sit in the boring sermon that somehow the kids are not going to learn what we want them to learn, that they have to be with those child experts who can entertain them. And we do kind of let that seep into our thinking. And I think he challenges that in a worthy way. And we should consider that. And there the we is to all of you who are actually parents, because I don't have to worry about that yet. Anyway, that's my first thought. Um, You're horrendous. I, I, I thought about pausing at this point and just saying, you know, Asking Tim, like, hey, what do you think about that? If you want to take that question and run with it, you can, or I can just go to my second point.
1: Well, each parent needs to evaluate their situation and maybe even their skill set or whatever for uh, their own family unit, and that's primarily going to fall on the father. You need to take the. You are the one that is responsible that will be held accountable by the Lord for how you lead your family. And so, I mean, for us, uh, we saw the Sunday morning worship service as a time when our children then learn to sit still, our children learn to uh, listen, or, and then as they get older to take notes. Uh, Sometimes we didn't really want them there because guess what happens? You know, you're there singing a song and worshiping the Lord, and then you look over and, you know, Peter's beating the snot out of Paul or whatever. Those (laughs) aren't the names of my kids, but I, I mean, you go from like this singing this hymn and worshiping God to all of a sudden you're about to, you know, you're ruled by the flesh and about to, uh, well, enforce some discipline in the lives of your children. Anyway. um, So that's why some are just like, you know what? I want to actually grow and, and, and and worship God in the church service. And guess what? My kids kind of prohibit that from happening because, you know, Cain is killing Abel right in the (laughs) front row of the pew. So, um, Anyway, you have to kind of evaluate that for yourselves, but as a whole, we try to involve our children in the church worship service, where they then incrementally just start doing things uh, with their hands, and uh, just writing out verses, and then listening to the pastor. We take notes, and then they just copy our notes. Um, My wife would have a highlighter, so she would write in a highlighter, and then the kids would just copy the highlighter. Uh, so you're then just training them and teaching them to sit in church, to listen, and then to take notes from the pastor's sermon. So that's kind of how we went about it. Uh, I think it's actually very similar to a an annual, I don't know exactly how he would implement whatever he implements, but I think it's, we're very like-minded on our sure. approach. So we didn't go into like children's church or send our kids to a children's church. Um, and um, But I do see the appropriateness for fellowship and community among kids of the same age, so having a Sunday school service where there can be uh, a lesson that is specifically applied to children at a Sunday school age, uh, I see that that would be um, a good thing. Uh, but, but some churches, they just segregate everything, and I don't think that's healthy at all. And, sure. And I think he's against that in that book. So
0: Yeah, and, and you're you're thinking right along the same lines as me. He actually... Pointed out some aspects of that, you know, where kids are disruptive. Mm-hmm. How that actually can be a very discipleship-oriented moment for everyone mm-hmm. in the assembly. So it's a discipling moment for the kids because they're going to be, uh, you know, disciple and disciplined are very close words, right? Mm-hmm. And then it's it's a discipling moment for the parents who, okay, this is embarrassing. How do I handle this? Right, yeah. And then there's then this Joe or Jane sitting in the pew and they're like, okay, are you going to take care of your crying child? Like, you know, I'm just trying to worship over here. Can't you deal with your kids? And that's not the right response. And he, he, I really like how he points that out, how having the kids in the worship service and that happening is, is actually a good thing for the assembly. And uh, I'm, you know, I've kind of shifted my views on things like that. At first, my thought when there's a crying child was, you know, don't they know we have a nursery? And it's kind of like, why aren't they? Well, do they not trust us? What's the issue? And and realizing there's so much more to it than that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then shifting that to, you know, how beautiful that is, mm-hmm. you know, just that hears and pray for those parents. (laughs) We had a church camp out recently and there was a dad and a young boy and that young boy is just a firecracker. And you know what I've done like every day since I prayed for his dad. Yeah. And I think that it's, that is a discipling event for everybody. Mm -hmm. And then another thought about, you know, could it be better for a child to be in children's church than in the main service? And I actually think that there could be instances where it's better, but it ultimately falls back to the parent Mm -hmm. and annual points this out too. you know, some people send their kids to children's church and it's like a a means of entertainment. You know, it's what their kids are going to enjoy. And then some parents don't send their kids to children's church, but they're like, okay, here's my phone. Here's my tablet. Here's a coloring pad. And there's kind of like varying levels of how do you keep them quiet and entertained? And, you know, may it never be, but I've seen it. You know, here's a kid with AirPods in, in the middle of a worship service. And at that point, what what are you even doing? You know, they're, they're not in any way listening to or watching, participating in what's happening in that room. And at that point, while it, you know, you could argue what's good, what's better, what's best. I would not say children's church is best. I, I would not argue for that but could children's church be better than kid with AirPods in? Yeah, I think so. And, and so I think again, it just really highlights to the mom and the dad. Like, are you thinking through how we, not how the pastor, not how the children's Mm -hmm. church teacher, how we are shepherding our kids. Yeah. And I love, I love that. Um, you, did you have another thought there? Nope. Okay. We'll go. No. So the question there is, here's this idea that the parents think that it has to entertain their kids. And as I was thinking about that thought, do parents really believe that they have to entertain their kids for them to learn? Here's my thought. I don't think there are a lot of parents in our churches that are quote unquote passionate about our children's ministry philosophy. That they, I don't, I don't think they really care. Like, oh man, children's church is absolutely the only way to do this, or the other side of the spectrum. I don't think there's a lot of Scott annuals floating around in our churches, where it's like children's church is the devil. <laughs> uh, that's not fair to him, but <laughs> if he hears this and he wants to contend that, I'll gladly let him. But I, I don't think we have a lot of polarizing people like that. Right. I think a lot of people are just in the flow of mm-hmm. what the life of the church is doing, which right. highlights, again, why the family and good pastors are really helpful, because I think most people are just going to go with the flow. And so I don't think there's a lot of passionate people, like we have to do Sunday school, we have to have children's church. Uh, I think most people would look at it as practical, and, and, and it being like age segregated learning. It's it's a practical uh, thing that we do. Um, To that again, I'll just raise the question that I think annual presents well. While it is practical, should an age-segregated model of children's ministry for what seems to be interest or entertainment be the determining factor of efficacy for a ministry method? And I think clearly, if, if if we just kind of strip away the pairings of it, clearly the answer is no. Like, that should not be the primary factor in our minds. Like, hmm, what would make an effective ministry? Are they all the same age? <laughs> like, nowhere in scripture are you going to, you know. Um, And I, I think of like Titus 2, where clearly there's admonition for older groups of people to be ministering to the younger.
1: Right, but then there, you could make an argument for a uh, segregated By gender.
0: By gender. Ooh, now, let's not get into that one. That's in a whole other topic. <laughs> that would have to be let the little women come or something like that. But, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it, so I, I think thinking it through from a philosophy and a model standpoint, I'm not, I think I'm, I'm leaning towards or sympathetic to some of the arguments that he's making in the sense that I, I don't see that as a determining factor of what an efficient children's ministry would look like. Okay. Anyway. Um, moving on, what I, I really like about the book too, is that it's meant to be very practical and I think it's used for that. I think over half of the book is recommendations to help a parent think it through. Here's a schedule of devotions. Here's a simple plan you can follow. Here is a list of books. Here's things you could sing. Here's where to find ideas. Uh, I I enjoy that most of the latter half of the book is intended just to cultivate ideas for family worship. It's how to read the Bible together, how to pray, how to direct the minds and hearts of your kids, uh, mostly in the home. And uh, these are all the goals of the practical ideas and lists at the end of the book. And it's, it really is. It's almost half of the of the book is that. And uh, regardless of whether a particular reader selects or utilizes each individual resource he plugs, I think it certainly should be uh, some type of a, of, of a sparking of an idea for you. And, and just for that reason alone, I think it's worth kind of seeing what someone else is doing to help you evaluate what you're doing. And so I, I really liked that half of the book, just the practical side for parents. So uh, overall, I would just give the, I, I tried to find where you commented on this book probably like a year or two ago. I couldn't find it. So, Sydney, if you're listening to this and you want to help me find that, thank you, Sydney. Uh, but I, I think I would place it like a five or a six overall. Good. A solid book.
1: Yeah. So, on that same theme, you have the idea of music. And of course, Scott Annual is pretty passionate about mu- music itself.
0: Is he passionate about music or does he have affections for music?
1: Yes, he has affections for it. <laughs> I used the word inappropriately. Please forgive me. So, um, Passions are the devil, Tim. So he there's uh, something that we've been, I don't know about been doing, but uh, we enjoy doing, and I've been doing more of this, is actually incorporating uh, psalms, like the singing of the psalms, in both Sunday school, because we have a college Sunday school class, and we are currently going through the psalms. At the end of a lesson, we will then sing And the psalm that we just studied. It's actually been quite nice. I've enjoyed it. I did it even just this last week, Psalm 42, uh, as the deer. Mm. And there's that praise chorus, as a deer. um, as for the the water. Yeah, panteth for the water. So my soul longeth after thee. Okay, so that praise chorus. And we kind of even critiqued that praise chorus in comparison to what the psalm is teaching. There's (laughs) Pretty significant difference, and then even the psalter song. So thinking through, you know what? What is our goal? What is our mission when it comes to raising and training our kids? Well, part of that is actually singing. God wants us to teach our kids how to sing, and there can be a lot of smiling going on in an auditorium when little children begin to sing, like really sing. Yes, old people love it.
0: I, I, some of the most fun. Uh, I, I don't want to use the word, but like, almost like frivolous, not, not meaningless, mm-hmm. but fun, uh, just ju- jubilant moments of a church is when those little kids get up there. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, that's a beautiful thing.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. So cultivating those affections then in your children at a very young age is what prepares them for having properly ordered affections and even good discernment when it comes to good music when they're older. Uh, Well, what's going to best prepare them for that? You know, singing, uh, uh, what's the Abraham song? uh, Father Abraham. Father Abraham. I mean, that's not going to really help our children, okay? (laughs) And I would contend, you know, they can actually sing the hymns. Uh, They can sing uh, songs that, it doesn't have to necessarily be the hymns, but just songs of substance which then teach them to think about the words that they're saying, as opposed to uh, you being a a son of father Abraham, which, Mm. well, Houston, we've had some issues here. So anyway,
0: all right. I'm good. I'll just say one more thing about uh, Scott annual and what, what I, and I think this goes back to kind of that Lewis thought from earlier, trying to be fair and equitable, not pigeonhole someone, and I think it's really easy when we disagree with someone to, again, build some straw man or some, like, you know.
1: Well, what we want is we want them to be totally wrong in everything that they ever say. Exactly. But that's just not realistic. No. People are at varying stages where they do say things that are correct. Even people who are steeped in error. I mean... Mm-hmm. Satan said a lot of right things in the Garden of Eden.
0: <laughs> well, okay, so I don't want to get in any comparison of Scott and Satan. That's another point at all. Um, I, I to the to the extent that I know Scott, have interacted with him, uh, I, I I see him as a kind and reverent man, and I really appreciate him. Mm-hmm. And I think it's sometimes when we when we can read someone's book and someone who's never talked with or you've never conversed with them in person or you know, in person now, like via Zoom or via email or whatever, uh, or you've never even heard them speak audibly, that you can, you can kind of get this idea of who they are that's very uh, discord to who they actually are. And what I love about Scott is almost every evening he posts a picture on Twitter of one of his kids sitting in his lap and what are they doing They're singing the Psalms. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, it's one thing to have an idea and to be a hypocrite and like you're just throwing an idea out there, uh, you know, wanting to get some recognition for being, you know, polarizing or, you know, trying to build a name for yourself. And I just think he's genuine. I think he genuinely wants his kids to love the Lord and he's Mm -hmm. uh, devoted himself to doing that the best way biblically and practically that he sees fit. And I think his sharing of that with us is incredibly valuable. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, are you gonna are we gonna agree with everything and you know, well probably there's, not.
1: There's not much I don't agree with Scott that's, about. And that's true. So uh, I'm i when I when I think through that whole conversation, I don't think of Scott Angel. I think of like Zachary Wagner or Shaylor and Gregori or some of these true. others where they're majorly wrong in some significant yeah. areas.
0: Well, and, and I think you just, you have to get to the point where you're willing to, you know, how would I want people to read my ideas? Right. And, well, that's not what I meant. Well, that's probably not what Scott meant either. <laughs> and uh, I got the sense at some point that when people read this book, they get this idea that Scott believes that if a parent lets their kid go to children's church, he thinks they're a horrible parent. mm and I just don't think that's the case. No. I, I think he's he's trying to love and encourage parents to raise their kids up to love the Lord. Mm-hmm. And I think he's just trying to be a genuine help. Mm-hmm. And I think he, he loves kids and he, he loves uh, helping kids worship. And so anyway, I, I just kind of circled back around to replug it again. But I, I think it's really worth, uh, certainly, I mean, I'm not a parent not married and I was incredibly helped by the book. I think it's a great resource. So uh, if you'd want to find that book, you know where you can find it, Tim, there's this little place on the corner of Faith Baptist Bible college's campus called the faith bookstore. And man, does it have some good things anyway. Let's uh, close our podcast with a final meditation from God's word.
1: So I've been teaching introduction to Bible study for, um, Andy, uh, in uh, the Bible College, so kind of a new experience for me having a bunch of freshmen. And I've been going through some of his notes as I teach in to Bible Study, and he makes a big deal about Bible translations, which was kind of interesting um, I, for me. Uh, as a seminary professor, I consult translations like the New Living Translation and the Message. I don't mind using them. Uh, I find the translation of Eugene Peterson in the Message somewhat Fascinating, on multiple occasions. Uh, basically, it's a lot easier to just create a wooden translation where you go word for word, as opposed to uh, trying to communicate the the truth of the written word in a more dynamic uh, way. So uh, Eugene Peterson's done that, and I find it fascinating. Yet, what after going through Andy's notes and stuff, what I've learned is that um, he's really made a really strong case against using translations like the Message or the New Living Translation, primarily for English students um, for Bible study, because those translations do not give you the very words of the original translation. So a word-for-word translation is way better, because you're getting the words from the Greek, from the Hebrew, that then would create the English correspondence. Now you might be like, "Oh, it doesn't really matter." Well, this actually connects to this whole idea of children and let the little children come. Because often why is it that we want a new living translation? Why is it that people want to have the message as opposed to like the New American Standard Bible?
0: It's it's easier to read.
1: It's easier to read. Okay? So, if I'm reading my Bible, shouldn't I be able to read it in a translation where it just it makes sense? And um well, that was, that's a really interesting point, and and there's a there's different purposes for Bible reading, and we've talked about this on the podcast before. But for Bible study, the purpose is not so that it's easy to read. In fact, if you took the um, the if you took that kind of a of a scripture or a philosophy of education, a philosophy of translation, to the ancient sages of the Old Testament, they would be like, "What? Why are you making it easy for them?" Because what did the sages of old seek to do?
0: They posed truth often in riddle.
1: Yeah. So in Proverbs 1 1 through 7, we've talked about this in the past. The reason the Proverbs of Solomon were written was to make people wise. And how did the sages of old do that? By putting the cookies on the bottom shelf? No. Making
0: people think.
1: They made people think. So it states in verse 5, Proverbs 1.5, a wise man will hear and increase learning, and a man of understanding will attain wise counsel. To understand a proverb and an enigma, the words of the wise and their riddles. So the ancients of old spoke in riddles. They spoke in words that were difficult to understand, and they expected the youth to figure them out to pursue after the truth. You see, by having a education philosophy like children's church or um, um, and constantly playing to the lowest common denominator, we're actually harming ourselves, our churches, and our kids, because they're not maturing. They're not growing up. A, a, a biblical philosophy of education pushes them. It teaches them, hey, you know what? You can pay attention in church, and you can learn to take notes, and you can learn to benefit from the public exhortation of God's word from the pastor. You can learn the songs, the hymns that everybody else sings. You can learn theologically rich uh, psalms that others sing. I mean, we sing the psalms in my house and my kids can do it. Now my kids are getting older, the youngest is eight. Okay, so they're, um, but still, you know, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, singing psalms. And the, uh, you know, I was ripping on that little praise chorus. The reason that praise chorus is so banal is because it doesn't say anything about who God is. It doesn't develop the character of God. All it's after is emoting after some kind of, you know, I'm going to pant for God like the deer pants for water. And well, that's great. Well, who is this God? And it's empty. Whereas Psalm 42, guess what it does? It develops who God is. And it cultivates the mind and the imagination so that then one, one grows in their understanding of who God is. It's the same thing with Bible translations. By saying, hey, just use the New Living Translation, you're depriving the reader of God's word the intellectual benefit of struggling with the scripture. Because the NLT, the message, and those translations, what do they do? They make it easy for you their philosophy of education issues with those translations, which is why I would encourage you that your default translation, particularly for Bible study, should be something like the KJV and KJV, ESV, or NASB. new American Standard, yeah, those should be your main translations, and so that was just something recently I was working through that kind of co- uh, corresponded to what Carter was uh, talking about with "Let the little children come," and Bible translations is the same issue. Now we, we use the new we did use the New Living Translation for like our four and five year old kids um, because it, that wasn't cookies on the bottom shelf for them. That was still you know boosting them up, but that's just for a season. Now they're all using, even, you know, eight-year-old, using New King James uh, is usually what we use in our home, our ESV, some of them have ESVs, and um, and we want them to actually struggle with understanding the scriptures, because it will strengthen their intellectual Ability to discern the meaning of God's word and thus then teaches them to apply it for themselves to their lives. It's more than a children's church lesson, it's more than a Bible translation, it's more than a song. It's a philosophy of education and it should affect all of those things. And I would contend this is a biblical philosophy of education and something that we need to take seriously as parents.
0: The Thinklings want to remind our listeners that the Thinklings podcast is our personal production. Our conversations, book discussions, and viewpoints may not represent the views of Faith Baptist Bible College and Theological Seminary. Any questions or feedback should be directed to us at the Thinklings podcast.